You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. The last of them are up in these mountain strongholds, afraid of the sea that used to sustain them. When you were a small child, your mother told you to fear the sea. She pointed to the distant blue glittering far below in the late afternoon sun, and she told you to watch the waves. She told you of days long before you were born, when the waves rose up and swallowed the towns and palaces. She told you of the men who rode the waves, of their desires for gold and power and domination. She told you that death always followed those waves. When your mother's mother first came to the mountains, the palace of Knossos still stood. This is before it had been overrun by people from the sea, looted and burnt. Your grandmother wept. Your mother watched the sea. You have only ever seen the sea from a distance, the specks of blue and silver shimmering so far below. Sometimes, when you were a child, you'd reach out your hand and try to imagine grabbing it holding on to the undulating blue, wondering what it felt like to hold a wave. Did it feel like the soothing cold of the vulture spring on a hot summer day, or like the first taste of snowflakes on your tongue in winter? Or like the bitter lashings of the angry sky god as he threw down sheets of rain before a lightning strike? When you were very small, you promised yourself that one day you'd leave this mountain, and discover what is beyond the endless horizon. You never told your mother this. You didn't want her to worry. She already worried too much about your father, who spent his days tending the crops far below in the valley, about your sister, whose breath came in short puffs and wheezes when she returned every morning with water from the vulture springs. But your mother never worried about you. She would stroke your face and tell you, You, my daughter, are a survivor. You will be here long after this village falls into the dirt. Your mother passed last winter after a bout of illness swept its way up from the plains. Your father died the spring before, falling from an olive tree in the northern groves. 
They are buried together in tombs, your mother clutching the only thing she owned of value, a small golden bowl that was a gift from your grandfather. Your father held nothing, not even his wife's hand. Sometimes you think that your mother must have been making up all these stories of the sea swallowing the land. Those stories at least sounded ridiculous to you. You have seen enough of the greed of men to believe the other stories, the ones about the men who rode the waves. The furthest you've ever traveled is to the neighboring villages. You have heard the rumors that some are thinking about moving down into the plains. Some are even talking about returning to the sea. Your mother would be terrified, but you are not so sure. You think that maybe the danger has passed. Maybe it's finally time to descend from the mountains. It's almost dusk and the day grows colder. You bend to light your fire and you hear shouting outside. You rise and go to your door. Your little mountaintop village is in an uproar. People in the streets shouting and pointing to the west, down to the sea. At first, you think it must be a trick of the light, but then you realize it is not. Down on the distant sea, you see sails white and bobbing across the waves. They have returned. You feel a flash of fear and you try to push it down. They have never braved the mountain paths before, not in memory or legend. But if the world below is as picked clean as you've heard, if there is nothing for them on the coast, how far will they dare to climb to satisfy their greed? I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, high in the mountains of eastern Crete, there is a secret that has been kept since the 1200s BC. It's a complex secret, a mystery of epic proportions. It's the secret of the strange and still largely unexplained 80-plus ancient villages hidden in the Cretan mountains that may have been the last refuges of the Minoan people. The ancient Minoans were, at one time, a confident people. They were master seafarers, sailing far and wide, masters of the seas, unafraid to live near the coastline, go out in search of what was beyond the horizon, and interact with the world. Not to mention building elaborate palaces, farming the rich fertile plains of Crete, and taking advantage of every natural resource their island offered. But sometime between the 1200s and the 1000s BC, the people simply withdrew from the world. They abandoned their coastal villages, their palaces, their fertile farmlands, their trade routes, and the wider world, and took refuge in the mountains. Today, we're going to look at where they went and why. Crete is a mountainous island. There are five mountain regions, each with its own unique character, with high-altitude deserts, rocky gorges, lush plateaus, mysterious caves, and high mountain villages. And of course, if you know where to look for them ancient ruins. High above sea level, on the peaks and high ridges and built into the sides of mountains, you'll find the ruins of complex villages that were founded sometime between 1200 and 1000 BC. They weren't small places either. Some could host up to 3,000 people. All of these villages are on the east of Crete. They all face the sea, with the mountains and neighboring villages at their backs, and they all sprung up roughly around the same time, in the 1200s to the 1000s BC, as we've said, a time that is dramatically called the Bronze Age Collapse, although it was more of a slow decline, but it's our podcast and we love some drama, so we're going to continue to call it the Bronze Age Collapse. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, we are, because we love ourselves some drama. So these villages were almost impossible to get to. You have to follow very tight, narrow, winding paths up hills and mountains. In some places, the only way you can make it to the top is by 
handholds carved into the cliff faces. The climate here is also inhospitable. In the summer, the temperatures have been known to climb into the hundreds Fahrenheit. And in the winter, the mountains are windy and snow-capped. There is no break from the unremitting sun in the summer or the brutal cold and wind in the winter. In short, these villages were not for the faint of heart and not for the average person to stumble upon. They were remote, isolated, removed from the world below. And they tell us a story, a story of a culture in crisis, of one civilization ending and another beginning. They tell us so much and yet so little. Join us as we walk the ancient paths and try to unravel the mysterious villages left behind at the fall of the Minoan civilization. Trace the footsteps of refugees and conquerors across the ancient Cretan mountains and try to discover what they can tell us about the past and the future. So, this episode begins with a volcanic eruption. Because apparently, this season, I have managed to wriggle my way into talking about volcanoes a lot. Look, I'm sorry for those of you who don't love volcanoes as much as I do. You're clearly wrong. Volcanoes are utterly fascinating, and they shape the world, and that's all there is to it. And if you don't have a love of them, I don't know what to tell you. You're wrong. She basically couldn't be persuaded to do any episodes that don't have a volcano in it. That's what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> Look, every single ancient mystery can be solved by a volcano did it. That's it. That's what I've learned. Ancient volcano fangirl. Anyway, sometime around the 1600s BC, there was a massive volcanic eruption, the Thera eruption. This was one of the biggest volcanic events in human history. And historical dates in the ancient Mediterranean, particularly in the ancient Eastern Mediterranean, tend to revolve around this date. It's a huge marker in history. The exact date of this volcanic eruption is still hotly debated today, with research going back and forth and suggesting different dates. And here's my promise to you, because I've wanted to do it for so long, we will do a full episode, a big deep dive on this volcanic eruption in another season. I promise. Ancient volcano fangirl. <laughs> there is, I have a whole season about natural disasters and this is in there, so it's going to happen. We just haven't got there yet. But for now, for now, we're just going to hit the highlights because you know, you know how good it's going to be when I talk about this in Pompeii in the same season. Anyway. The Thera, the Thera eruption was so massive that it changed the shape of the ancient Mediterranean. It seems to have happened in stages, with a series of earthquakes and smaller eruptions in the lead-up to the epic world-ending eruption. These earthquakes in themselves would have been natural disasters. They potentially spawned tsunamis that ravaged the coastlines of Crete, roughly 90 miles to the south of Thera, as well as other ancient island communities, but this was nothing compared to the final eruption. Coastal communities in the Mediterranean had been hit with tsunami after tsunami over a period of, who knows, months, a few months, theoretically. I think it was a few months that this was happen happening. Theoretically, there were tsunamis. It's all still being debated. You know, they think a lot of the damage to Crete probably came before the eruption because the way the ash and stuff went, it sort of went more to the east and towards Turkey, I think. There were tsunamis. Would the Thera eruption have spawned a tsunami? Probably. We don't know exactly, but there were definitely tsunamis in this period. I've seen um, computer-generated models of this that showed the ancient Mediterranean and how the water would have acted in the Thera eruption, and it was like, the way that the researchers described it, it was like a bathtub, you know, with, with waves just sloshing around everywhere, and it would have just been cycles of tsunamis that 
went in one direction, hit the coastline, bounced back, and then went in another direction. That's not to say that's definitely how it went down, but that's a possibility that this is what these people were dealing with. And I want to just say something about tsunamis. A lot of people think like, oh, it's just one wave. That's not true. Tsunamis do tend to come in like a couple of waves. The second wave might not be as high, but, you know, you do kind of get this series of waves that come in. Yeah, I don't know how this has played out in modern times. I have no idea. I know there have been several tsunamis that have hit places in the world that have been absolutely devastating in the past few decades. I don't know if they had more than one. I can't say. I would assume, I'm not speaking about this with knowledge, but I would assume that if it's a smaller ocean, then it would be more likely to be more than one because everything is more concentrated. The shape of the land will also change the shape of the wave. And any sort of underground topography of the land will also change the shape of the wave. You mean like the seafloor? The seafloor, yeah. So when Thera finally erupted, it was unlike anything before in recorded human history. The eruption was believed to be a VE-7, about the equal of 40 atomic bombs and 100 times more powerful than the eruption at Pompeii. VE-7, is that like the Richter scale? Volcanic Explosivity Index. VEI. It's a category VEI-7. That's a measurement of how, how much a volcano goes boom. Yes, essentially. But it's also about sort of like what gets ejected from the volcano. Lava, magma, stuff goes into the atmosphere. When you also talk about earthquakes are measured in their own way. And so volcanoes are measured in this way. And they're slightly different. But it's kind of telling you how much stuff was put into the air. So this was about the equal of 40 atomic bombs and 100 times more powerful than the eruption at Pompeii. The eruption blew apart the island of Thera. It spawned massive tsunamis which roared across the Mediterranean and crashed into the islands, wreaking havoc and overwhelming whoever remained near the coast. And it led to a volcanic winter that affected the entire globe. It's mentioned in the Bamboo Annals, Chronicles of Ancient China written in approximately 296 BC. The entry that we're talking about, it's referring to events in approximately 1618 BC. And it mentions what's believed to be a volcanic winter caused by this eruption. Quote, Yellow fog, a dim sun, then three suns, frost in July, famine, and the withering of all five cereals. You can find evidence of the volcanic winter in tree rings as far away as Sweden and Ireland. You can find ash and pumice in the polar ice caps and in Egypt and throughout the Mediterranean world. Evidence from sea and lake beds in Turkey shows that the ash falls of this eruption was heaviest in lands to the east and northeast of Santorini. Santorini is the island that Thera became. It was blown apart into a new shape, and that new shape is Santorini. The eruption changed the weather in the Mediterranean and as far away as China. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. So we know the direction the wind carried the ash was more towards Turkey. The explosivity would have been more towards Turkey. We don't know exactly how the tsunamis would have come out of that. You can even see traces of this eruption in Greek mythology. And I know, Jenny, aren't you thrilled that I brought it all back to mythology? Because that's the nerd I am as well. Mythology and volcanoes. This is such a win for me and maybe for the rest of you. Anyway, we can find these traces of this eruption in the Titanomachy, the war between the gods and the Titans. And this is a quote from an article that has a very long but fun name called Dinosaur Bones Become Griffins, Volcanic Eruptions Become Gods Fighting, Geomythology Looks to Ancient Stories for Hints of the Scientific Truth by Timothy John Burberry. Quote, Historian of science Mott Green argues that key moments of the Titanomachy map onto the eruption's signature. 
For example, Hesiod notes that loud rumbles emanated from the ground as the armies clashed. Seismologists now know that harmonic tremors, small earthquakes, that sometimes precede eruptions, often produce similar sounds. And the impression of the sky, wide heaven, shaking during the battle, could have been inspired by shock waves in the air, caused by the volcanic explosion. Hence, the Titanomachy may represent the creative misreading of a natural event. And I had to include this quote because it just blew my mind. I love the overlay of the mythology over the natural events and how we can create these stories to explain natural disasters that we don't understand. Like, I didn't even think about the idea of the sky and the shock waves that would be up there that would make things like the sky would look like it had opened wide. There is this this area of study that I'm super interested in, which is how Greek mythology, like classical Greek mythology as we understand it today, sprung up in the wreckage of the Bronze Age collapse, specifically the collapse of the Minoan culture, because there are ties back to that in Greek mythology if you know where to look. And even Mycenaean culture, like for example, when I was in Athens with Liv and Jen last year, there are parts of the Acropolis that are kind of shored up, like there are these walls built up around it in some places that are really megalithic and ancient. And they were built probably, I believe, by the Mycenaeans, But um, the classical Greeks didn't know that. Like, they didn't have the historical continuity to know that. So what were they called, Jen? They were called the Cyclopean Walls because they were built by the Cyclopses. The ancient Athenians had this other mythology to explain the ruins that were already in their world. And this is one of them. Like, the Cyclops, they're like, well, giants must have built this wall because it's so huge, right? It's so huge. It stood for so long. I'm going to be in Athens. And I will take some pictures of these walls so you guys can see them. But what I was going to say about this is this episode is going to talk to you about what happened to the Minoans and the Mycenaeans a little bit. And one of the things that like, as I was writing this episode, I was like, there were these huge epic cultures that had stood for ages. And then it all just kind of came crashing down. And you can only imagine the ruins of what's left and how you would explain the stories and what the the purpose of some of these things like. That's what you're getting, as Jenny said, in the later Greek mythology. It's trying to understand these cultures that have come before and now aren't here anymore and like the impact they had on their society. Anyway, it's time to turn back to the island of Crete. And the main reason for this episode, we're going to look at what happened to the Minoans and the Mycenaeans a little bit of Crete after the eruption of Thera and into the Bronze Age collapse. The Thera eruption was a game-changer for Crete and for the Minoan civilization. Before the eruption of Thera, the Minoan civilization was the dominant civilization in Crete, and it was a major power player throughout the Mediterranean world. This civilization was famous for its epic palaces, like the huge maze-like complex at Knossos in Crete. Knossos is a massive palace complex that was said to be the home of the mythical king Minos and the Minotaur. The people who said that were the classical Greeks, making up stories to explain the maze-like ruins of storehouses under the palace centuries after the Minoans had disappeared. And you know, when you visit Knossos, which we did in Crete last year, you can see these sort of um, incredible square spiral staircase. Like it's square-shaped, but it, it goes up in a spiral. That ruin, people would have seen it. Like there's this idea of labyrinths and labyrinthic stairways that exists. For example, um, in the movie Labyrinth, if you remember, like all the weird stairways that go in all these weird different disorienting directions and kind of defy gravity. 
that image and that trope can be traced right back to that staircase at Knossos, which I believe was maybe the first of its kind that we know of in history. It's so old. You know, this this innovative idea of building a staircase like this in stone. It's just this beautiful kind of open galley that would have been sunny and beautiful. And I believe that there's there's murals down there, I think. These beautiful columns holding up this gorgeous stairway. So the ancient classical Greeks had seen this ruin, you know, seen it the same as we did and made up their own stories about this labyrinth. And there's a lot of iconic bull imagery, including in Knossos, and um, this idea of a human with a bull's head and a, a minotaur and minos, like all of that came specifically from the ruins that they were seeing. The ancient Greeks and the Romans after them constantly made up stories like this to explain the world around them that they didn't know because like I said the Bronze Age collapse had happened they didn't have the cultural continuity of understanding where these ruins came from so they had to make it up themselves. The thing about Knossos when you go there I've been there twice each time I was on the island of Crete there was an earthquake and this is super important when you think about first off what you can see of the site and what remains of the site so each time I went there, different places were blocked off for like restoration or because they were sort of dangerous because they'd had a lot of seismic activity. And again, when you talk about the mythology of the labyrinth, you have this idea of this like beast living beneath the floor. Like, And when people would have seen these completed ruins, you can imagine why that's there because they had all this shaking and this earth vibrating. You know, you can see where that, that would have come from, right? It's like, what is going on down there that shakes the palace like that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's just another element of this that just adds to the world that the ancient, probably archaic Greeks, I would assume, were experiencing when they spun these myths, right? Like a lot of Greek mythology is there to explain the past, which in this weird way, I just want to chart that and map all that out. I just want to dive all into it. And I will, I will I'll be there very soon. Anyway, so back to uh, what we were reading. So prior to the eruption of Thera, a lot of the Minoan towns and villages were built near the coast because the Minoans were a seafaring people. They used the ocean for trade, travel, and food. They were expert fishermen and had trade contacts throughout the Mediterranean world. The Minoans weren't what they called themselves, by the way. They were named that by 19th century gentleman archaeologist Arthur Evans, who uncovered the first evidence of this Bronze Age society in Crete. He gave them that name after the mythical King Minos, son of Zeus, who was said in Greek mythology to be the founder of Crete. We still don't know what name they used for themselves. Ever since Arthur Evans's time, this early civilization in Crete has been referred to as the Minoans. The Minoans were an advanced civilization for ancient times. They built huge palaces in Crete at Knossos, Malia, where the Malia bees are found, and the other palace was Phaistos. And yes, that is the place where they found the Phaistos disc. I have worshipped at the altar of the Phaistos disc twice. I've been privileged enough to be allowed into its presence two times. I might do one of my mystery episodes on it because I am just utterly riveted by the Phaistos disc. It's fascinating. How can you not be? So the Minoans' cultural influence and trade stretched across the Mediterranean and into the Near East. Evidence of Minoan artwork, particularly the use of bull's heads, which were a clear motif in Minoan art, has been found in mainland Greek Mycenaean tombs. Minoans were said to have imported papyrus from Egypt, and they used a writing system called Linear A that scholars have yet to translate. It's a form of language that might have had links to a form of Cretan hieroglyphics based on Egyptian ones, and this is all speculation as Linear A cannot be translated at this point in time. 
Who knows what'll happen in the future? I'd love to know what Lanieri says. Anyway, the point here is that the Minoans were, for a really long time, the most dominant culture in this area of the world. And they weren't warlike. Like, I think that their main way of, I guess, dominating, which might be the wrong word, is through trade and through cultural exchange. Like, people just really loved their artwork and their motifs and their culture and adopted a lot of things, is what I understand, and bought a lot of things from them. Yeah, because I guess one of the things to understand about the location of Crete, when you think about how people would have sailed in the ancient world, a lot of times they hopped from island to island so that they were never, like, too long on the ocean. So, like... Crete was kind of perfectly on your way to Troy, you know, Turkey, on your way to the mainland, on your way to Egypt. So they were kind of really centrally located. So it was a great place if you were a peaceful civilization who didn't have to fight all the time. You could have a lot of cultural exchange. Everybody had to stop there on their way to other places if they were going by sea because they did have to make frequent stops on their ships. Like they didn't have like ships that could be on the sea for a really long time. Yeah. And also I think what the other main thing is like the Mediterranean, just like many other places in the world, can get really fierce storms that come up really quickly. So like it made a lot of sense to, you know, when you're when you're able to sail, to sail shorter distance by hopping across the islands because it keeps you safer. It means if a bad storm comes up, you're not too far away and you can get to safety. But here's the thing, Jenny. Everything changed for the Minoans when Thera erupted. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Things didn't change all at once. However, the Thera volcano erupted between, I think, roughly 1611 and 1538 B.C., And while some Minoan settlements, like the one at Akrotiri, were completely buried in pumice, it's intensely debated exactly how much effect the eruption really had on Crete. Some studies suggest that only a thin layer of ash fell on the island. Other evidence suggests a tsunami wiped out coastal settlements. I've seen this talked about in documentaries, like different archaeological evidence for tsunami damage to ruins that they found. Other hypotheses suggest that most of the damage was caused by earthquakes that preceded the eruption and fires caused by the earthquakes. And there is some absolutely fascinating evidence of earthquakes that we could talk about in a different episode because we didn't put it in here. We're going to do a season and we're going to cover this because it is incredible and fascinating. So anyway, all evidence suggests that regardless of the damage caused by the initial eruption, the Minoans rebuilt at first. They did abandon some settlements and probably had their fleet significantly damaged, which would have caused them serious hardship as theirs was a trading empire and they relied on the sea for money and food and travel. However, the Minoans did manage to hang on until around 1450 BC when they were overrun by the Mycenaeans, a far more militaristic and warlike culture from mainland Greece. The Mycenaeans were kind of like represented in the Iliad. And I'm not sure how much that's like a mythologized version of who the Mycenaeans were. I mean, probably, but like with the hero culture and the chariots and the spears and the Achilles of it all and all of that, like those were kind of, as I understand it, like basically shadows of the Mycenaeans. 
Those were the Mycenaeans. That's from what I understand. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that those were the Mycenaeans they're talking about. No, 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 you're right. You're right. They're talking about the Mycenaeans, and the Mycenaeans were also sort of like swept away in the Bronze Age collapse, as well as Troy and the Hittites. And we're going to get to it in a minute. It's it's incredible. And when we do the Bronze Age collapse, because I know a bunch of you have asked us when we're going to do it, we're going to tell you about all these cultures. That's right. But yeah, I just wanted you guys to know who the Mycenaeans were. They're basically the ancient Greeks from the Iliad. And the Odyssey. And the Odyssey, yeah. Some historians believe that the Minoans were weakened by another natural disaster after the Thera eruption, maybe another earthquake or tsunami, or that they've been struggling to recover from the original disastrous Thera eruption for a long time, which is now, I mean, it wasn't that long in the past. It was only maybe a century and a half at the most, maybe 200 years, maybe 100 years, maybe a few generations. Like, depending on how the dates work out, it's hard to tell. And there might have been even another Thera eruption as well, but not a cataclysmic eruption. Yeah, there's like lots of different theories about why the the Minoans were not doing so hot by the time the Mycenaeans got there. Yeah. At this time, the Mycenaeans from mainland Greece invaded Crete and began taking over the palaces. And there are signs of destruction at many Minoan settlements, including signs that some were set on fire, although the great palace at Knossos was undamaged. Most historians believe it's unclear whether the Mycenaeans violently destroyed the Minoans or whether the destruction is a result of internal rebellion and political unrest among the Minoans as the power of their ruling class diminished. Or maybe it's a bit of column A and a bit of column B, you know? Yeah, maybe it was both. Like you think you see evidence that something burned down in a fire in the archaeological record and you think that you know why and what this is evidence of. But sometimes that's just making assumptions based on a story you already know and tell yourself. So like it might seem really obvious, like, yeah, obviously the Mycenaeans did it, but we don't 100% actually know that. But what we do know is that around this time, Linear A started to be replaced by Linear B, a totally unrelated writing system used by the Mycenaeans. And Mycenaean artifacts started appearing in the archaeological record. We don't know what happened to the Minoans. They could have intermarried with the Mycenaeans, or become enslaved, or an oppressed underclass. They weren't killed entirely, as modern populations on Crete today carry significant Minoan as well as Mycenaean DNA. Anyway, whatever happened in the 1400s, this lasted approximately 200 to 250 years with the Mycenaeans taking over. Then, in the 1200s BC, everything in the ancient Mediterranean seemed to fall apart at once. This period is known as the Bronze Age Collapse. It's during this time that people in eastern Crete fled to the mountains, building more than 80 peak sanctuaries and withdrawing from the coasts entirely. The peak sanctuaries seem to have started out as religious shrines in the mountains, some of which had existed hundreds of years before this happened. The um, village that we're going to focus on is one called Karfi, which is one of the ancient peak sanctuary villages. And this one is like many of the peak sanctuaries built around this, this shrine that possibly existed hundreds of years before the village did. In an article about the village of Karfi on HellenicaWorld.com, you get an explanation about the shrine at Karfi and how it's been dated by archaeologists. Quote, The peak of Karfi, 
was originally a peak sanctuary, occupying a typical site on a high shoulder with a wide view shed that connected it with sight lines to other sites, typical of the network developed in the first palace period, which was around 1900 to 1800 BC onwards, but probably abandoned, perhaps under increased religious centralization in the Middle Minoan period from 1650 BC. So some of these sanctuary sites were from almost 2000 BC. And then when the Minoan religion became more centralized, these places were abandoned and then taken up again when people returned to the mountains. Yes, although it's possible that they were abandoned for wide-scale worship, but you may have always had small communities that still remained in those mountains working in those areas. We don't know, but, you know, we know that they returned at some point in time. A lot of the Minoan sort of religious rituals that probably would have been done in smaller communities were done at the big palaces because everything in the economy under palace economy was about supporting a palace. So anyway, continuing with this quote, the rocky site that the last of the Minoans returned to is dominated by a bifurcated stone outcropping that is unmistakably like the carved and shaped crescent horn stone altars known in Crete and Cyprus. At this high remote ancient sacred site, a fragment of Minoan civilization survived intact for about 400 years after the occupation of Knossos. Several clay religious figurines have been found there, including the cylindrical skirted goddesses with their hands raised in the epiphany gesture. So I think just to build a picture of what was happening, Jen, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just kind of trying to fill in the gaps here. What it seems like is that there were these peak shrine sanctuaries in the mountains of Crete from the 1900s BC, which was prior to the big Minoan palace period that people already knew about. They already knew these were sacred sites. They went to the mountains to worship. As the Minoan palaces built up, you know, and Minoans became culturally dominant, the main centers of worship came down to where the palaces were on the plains and coastlines. But then, when things started to collapse, people fled back to the mountains to these ancient sanctuary sites and took refuge there and built their villages there in sites that were already hundreds of years old that remained in the cultural memory. I think some of them, I don't think all 80 of them necessarily were peak sanctuaries from as far back. But yes, I think that is true for some of the peak sanctuaries. Yeah. Including maybe Carfi, right? I think definitely including Carfi. Carfi is is one that we know people were, were at a lot longer than when they took sanctuary up there during the Bronze Age collapse. And what's really fascinating about that is like, it, again, Jenny, this is a, a memory that these people have of where safety is. Yeah, that's what I was trying to trace out here. Like, this is like their ancestral sanctuary. And it makes a lot of sense because when you think about places that are ravaged a lot by things like tsunamis and earthquakes, like getting up high is is a good place to be. Yeah. So while we don't know the exact date of the religious shrine at Carthy, like when it was built, the evidence that we have leads us to think that it may date to the first Minoan palace period meaning it was probably created sometime in the 19 to 1800s BC. Super, super, super old. It is much, much older than the village and served a purpose of bringing people together before the Minoan religion was centralized at the height of its popularity. It also would exist long after the fall of the Minoan civilization, keeping the culture preserved because of its remoteness. Artifacts found include clay figurings of people and animals as well as human body parts made of clay, or these were votive body parts. Many sites like this later became villages, with people moving in. There are more than 80 of these villages, all in the mountains on the eastern side of Crete, all of them facing the sea. 
Ancient Greeks, non-Cretans, were aware of these people in the archaic and classical times, and even wrote about them. It's said that those who took refuge in the mountains of eastern Crete spoke a non-Greek language, known only by a few ancient inscriptions using the Greek alphabet. The earliest of these inscriptions date to around the late 600s BC, and the latest dates to around the 300s BC. Historians believe this language may have been the same as that written in Linear A, the Minoan language, or a descendant of it. These people who used to use Linear A to write things down were now using Greek alphabets to write things down, but in their own languages and not in Greek. So ancient Greeks called the people of the eastern Cretan mountains Eteocretans, or true Cretans. The true Cretans are referred to in ancient Greek sources such as the Odyssey. For example, I'm going to give you a quote. When he returns home to his wife Penelope in disguise as a grandson of Minos, Odysseus, remember Odysseus comes home in disguise to, you know, rout out all these suitors that are now living in his palace and trying to get get with his wife Penelope. Yeah, finding out if she's been faithful, how his land's been flourishing while he's not been there. Right, he's he's doing all this in disguise because he's, he's just fundamentally shady like that, I suppose. I mean PTSD. There's so many things about this. <laughs> sure, I'm not going into it now, but at this point, Odysseus is in disguise telling everybody that he's from Crete, his fake homeland, quote-unquote. There is a land called Crete in the midst of the wine-dark sea, a beautiful and fertile land, Seagirt. In it are many people, innumerable, and there are 90 cities. Language with language is mingled together. There are Achaeans, there are great-hearted Eteocretans, there are Kaidones and Dorians in their three clans, and noble Pelasgians. As late as the 100s AD, the geographer Strabo described the Eteocretans, quote, Of them, Staphylos says that the Dorians occupy the region toward the east, the Kaidones the western part, the Eteocretans the southern, whose town is Presos, where the temple of Dictaean Zeus is, and that the Eteocretans and Kaidones are probably indigenous, but the others incomers. So that's what Strabo has to say. So, the people who lived in these villages were Eteocretans, true Cretans. It does seem likely that they were the remnants of Minoan culture, as many of the artifacts found are clearly Minoan. We did talk about that iconic goddess with her hands up raised, tits out, snakes on the arms, right? Anyway, so one question that I had for Jan was, was it just Minoans up? Because remember, um, for like 200 years or so before this happened, the Minoans and the Mycenaeans were living together on the island. The Mycenaeans having overrun all the palaces and were now the, probably the dominant culture. They might have overtaken the island violently. So were both Mycenaeans and Minoans living in these villages now? Did they flee together or was it only the Minoans? That is an excellent question that I don't think we know the answer to yet. I would suggest, based on the amount of time that people were up there, it's possible that you had Minoans and Mycenaeans who'd intermarried, who fled together. You might have had some Mycenaeans who found their way up there. Like, I don't think these were closed communities when you're talking about 3,000 people. So potentially, yes, they were there together, but these were refuges of the Minoan people. So any Mycenaeans who were able to be granted entry had to have been pretty special. Maybe, yeah. Or in a, and one of the things that Jen told me when I asked this question originally was like, think about what the Mycenaeans had been through. Like they came over on the sea after, you know, maybe 200 
years or so approximately after the Thera eruption, but then they stayed for 200 years and they had been tsunamied and drowned and blown up by earthquakes and possibly other things that happened to them too. And they were just as ravaged at that point as the Minoans. So everybody might have been in decline together and suffered together, which which could be, you know, an experience that, that levels the playing field socially. And the other thing to think about, right, is there were 80 different villages. We know that, you know, people, when they when they are in these situations, tend to create their own communities. Were there communities that may have been all Minoan or all Mycenaean or whatever? Yeah. But here's the thing. These villages that we're going to talk about, particularly Carfi, they all faced each other. They, they were not fighting with each other. They were looking for something coming from the sea. So whatever happened to these people, they all sort of were committed to surviving. And they cooperated. I think it's pretty clear that they were not interwarring. And there was an interesting thing that we said earlier about sight lines in the, in the village of Carfi, which we're going to talk about in more detail, is that Carfi had sight lines to several other villages in the area, as well as, you know, the surrounding plains and the sea. So they could see other villages, which means that potentially if something went wrong, they could signal each other. They could get to each other really quickly. They could see if, you know, someone had raided and was starting to burn a village nearby, they could see that, you know, and maybe come to their aid or hide in the mountains or something. So, like, they they were all connected and presumably aided each other. They were really at their their wits end, you know, they were all sort of like struggling to survive here together. That's what I'm saying is that all the all the disasters that would have happened since the Mycenaeans came might have dissolved the social strata so that by the point that they all fled to the mountains, they were all kind of more equal. Sure, because you also no longer have the palace economy. So now it's less about serving the king or queen or making that sort of like trade go by. Now it's about the old worship of the gods and goddesses, mostly the mother goddess, but we don't know, other gods, I'm sure, and living, which is very different. Yeah, it's just about survival. Survival, yeah. So anyway, there are over 80 of these sanctuary towns. So let's just narrow down on one, the ancient town of Carfi. Carfi means the nail. The name Carfi comes from the local name of a limestone outcrop on the top of the mountain where the town is found. We don't know what its original name was. Carfi is high in the mountains, about 1,100 meters or 3,608 feet above sea level, with a vast view of the Cretan Sea and the surrounding valleys and plateaus. Archaeologists believe it started out as a peak sanctuary because the oldest part of the town is a shrine with an altar. As we said before, the shrine likely dates to the first Minoan palace period, meaning it was created probably sometime in the 19 to 1800s BC. The village is built just under a pair of twin rocky peaks that together look like a pair of horns. Coincidence? Bullhorns? Hmm. And this may be why the builders chose this site, as hornstone altars were widespread in the Bronze Age and mysterious to us today. And do you know who is associated with bulls? Do you know? My God and your God, Dionysus. Yeah, absolutely. Dionysus is heavily associated with Crete and his worship may have originated there and the dancing tits out snake lady might have been his priestess Ariadne. 
Dionysus is a very deep wellspring of Cretan remnants, in my opinion. <laughs> anyway, Carphe started out as a shrine, possibly to a goddess. Statues have been unearthed here of the famous iconic Cretan priestess with her hands upheld in supplication, often with a monkey or a snake around her, sometimes a bird. Her bare breasts, tits out, are fully on display. This iconic priestess was Minoan, not Mycenaean, which makes scholars believe that the people who fled to the mountains here were not Mycenaeans, but Minoans. The town of Carphi grew up around this religious shrine around 1200 BC. Carphi was a large town for the time with around 100 homes that housed up to 3,000 people. There was a spring located maybe like a few hundred feet or yards, I'm not sure, like some distance down from the village that kept people supplied with water and a complex series of pipes that helped preserve rainwater. So people didn't constantly have to climb up and down to that spring. And the interesting thing about that spring is today it's like little more than a trickle, but we believe, or archaeologists believe, that at the time it would have been an actual really like bursting spring that would have been able to, to actually keep these people sustained. Interesting. There were also several vaulted tombs that it seems have been looted. We don't know when. The spring, I don't know how old this name is, but the name for it now is Vitsilovrisi Spring. I probably mispronounced that, but it translates to Spring of the Vultures. Vulture Spring. Isn't that so interesting? And I will say one of the reasons why that spring would have been different then to now is climate change, not just our current climate change, but what was going on in this period as well. Yeah. So the people who sought refuge in the mountains at Carphi weren't soldiers or warriors. They were poor people and families, men, women, and children. We know this based on what they left behind, everyday items like pottery and statues of their goddesses. They didn't really leave much behind, to be honest. The path up to Carphi is very narrow in places and rocky. In some places, the only way forward is to use handholds cut into the rock. This made it naturally a safer place to take refuge. It was unlikely anyone would be able to sneak up on the village at night because of the location and difficulty ascending the path. It would have been difficult for warriors to ascend that path carrying all their armor and weapons, which made Carphi a good sanctuary. Potential attackers would be slowed down by the natural barriers of the landscape and by the narrowness of the paths. And the village could be defended by just a handful of people because those paths were so narrow. Yeah. And Jenny asked me, she's like, what earth earthwork defenses did they have? How did they defend all this? I'm like, first off, we don't know. I have not seen anything that said there was a wall. I could have missed it. I think what they were relying on here is the fact that in order to get to the top of this mountain, you kind of had to go up one by one. Therefore, they could just roll rocks down at you. Like literally like they didn't need the wall in the same way. I think that a lot of this, because it was a refuge, would have really relied on the remoteness and the terrain to keep people out. So the path to Carphi starts at the beginning of the plains. Today, there is a chapel that marks the way up to Carphi. It's the Chapel of St. Ariadne. Coincidence? I think not. Is Dionysus currently speaking to me through this episode? I think so. It's about a three-hour hike over rough terrain with lots of uneven ground and rocks, but it's still a path you can take today, and I want to do it so badly. People tend to ascend this using like poles and they have to prepare for a full day climb there and back. But one day we're going to go. We're going to go. 
Absolutely. Goats, sheep, donkeys, and even dogs, I've seen dogs in modern pictures, can generally manage to climb up that path. But larger grazing animals like bulls, cows, and pigs, they would most likely struggle with that steep, uneven ground and probably lived on the plains below, but I don't 100% know that. I would say that if people had bulls and cows in this time period, like that was a real luxury item. I mean, even a pig was a luxury item. I think it's unlikely that people would have been herding vast cattle herds down there. These were poor people. Like a cow was like a Ferrari. Yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about what the ancient village of Carfi might have looked like. Like it's one of the larger of the 80 settlements in the mountains. According to the uh, official travel site for Carfi, Land of Experiences, Carfi, this is what Carfi looked like and what people got up to in Carfi. Quote, according to researchers, its population was estimated to have been around 3,500 inhabitants. And the main inhabitants' occupations were animal husbandry, hunting, and olive cultivation. Blocks of single-story houses with narrow cobbled streets and courtyards were found in the area. The existence of an organized water supply network and drainage system of waste and rainwater in the settlement was also noteworthy. In addition, a large threefold building that served as a sanctuary was discovered too. In this sanctuary, many ritual vases, devotional objects, and statuettes, including the Minoan goddess figurine with upraised hands, displayed at the Archaeological Museum of Heraklion, were found. In general, the findings were mostly vases and items of everyday use. These were just ordinary people living their lives. They haven't found weapons. There are reasons for why they probably haven't found weapons there or any tools of agriculture or stuff like that, because these people eventually descend the mountains and leave, and they would have taken that if they had it with them. This is the stuff that, like, are you really going to schlep this down the mountain, or could you get it at the other side? The latest news from the Carfi excavation site tells us, quote, The excavation showed for the first time that the site was widely destroyed, often violently and by fire, at the end of its life. While the site was never reoccupied, the excavation showed evidence of returns to the ruined architecture and tombs for specific ceremonial activities, including open-air cooking, in the 9th to 7th centuries BC. The participants seem likely to have been resident at the emergent regional center of Papura, occupied until 700 BC. So I wanted to include this quote because it tells us a lot about life in the village. Fire was a real danger, and it seems that the site suffered many fires. These may have been accidental fires, or it may have been destroyed by looters or invaders. There is some sign that the rock-cut tombs were looted at one point. So again, maybe invaders. It's not 100% sure what all those fires mean. Was it overrun despite its remote location several times? We don't know. Was that the reason people left? We don't know. And I think one of the things that, like, when I was researching it, like, a lot of these houses were stone with then wooden beams. And when you think about, number one, how high it is, I mean, lightning strikes all the time. That could could have happened up there. Number two, there is water. There's not enough water to put out a fire. If something is going to, like, catch on fire, like, essentially these stone houses on top of a mountain at 100 degrees are like little ovens. Like, you can just see what's going to happen. If, like, a lightning strikes in August, for example, yeah. Or somebody is, you know, careless with a cook fire or something. Exactly. So it's difficult to know exactly what happened here. The other thing we haven't talked about yet is when earthquakes strike, a lot of times the damage that you can have from an earthquake looks like fire damage because when an earthquake strikes, fires that are normally contained get uncontained by things collapsing and then, you know, igniting bigger blazes. So it's possible there was seismic activity that also led to fire. We don't know. It's a lot that's mysterious. And that's why it's a mystery. So 
Living in Carfi was precarious and extremely inconvenient. It was so high up and difficult to reach that farming and caring for larger livestock had to be done on the plain below the town because most livestock couldn't get up the twisting, winding paths. The Minoans, who left these mountains and then moved down by the sea, their diets then radically changed when they came back up into the mountains because the Minoans had a varied diet of, you know, sheep and goat and seafood. And now they're up in the middle of the, and, and pigs. And now they're up in the middle of the mountains. That food is not possible up there. It also said that, um, you know, in that paragraph that they farmed olives. So that, I guess that's one source of food is like olives and olive oil. I don't know what other vegetables that they were planting, but the fertile area to plant lots of crops were, was like down on the plain. So that's another problem is that they couldn't really farm in large quantities up there because it's like really rocky, thin soil and, and extreme climate conditions up there, right? Yeah. So they would have to be farming down on the plain. So they would have to feel that they were safe to farm that plain and that no one was going to take their shit. Which kind of leads to the idea that, like, these mountain communities really were sort of banded together in some way to take care of each other. Yeah, they weren't attacking each other necessarily. Because, again, the crops were left defenseless and the farmers had to carry. Once the crops were harvested, the village would have to carry that crop up those steep, twisting paths. It's possible, depending on the reason people fled to these mountains, that it was also maybe dangerous to farm at certain times. Like, we just, there's so many mysteries here. It's just deeply inconvenient to live way up there is the picture I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can't grow the sort of, like, widespread things up there that you'd need to make some kind of, like, bread. It's not a place you can grow that. I mean, you can grow some stuff at certain points in time, but not all things. We're making a lot of conjectures, but maybe it's possible they didn't have bread. They just ate whatever vegetables they could grow and some meat sometimes, depending if they could catch it or husband the animals and how possible it was to even have animals domesticated up there. Could you winch it up there? I don't know. Look, we're not going to go too deep into it. They had a winch. They had a goat winch. <laughs> Problem solved. Problem solved. Done. Anyway, living in Carfi wasn't for the faint of heart. The mountainside was blasted and baked by the sun in the summer, with temperatures rising over 100 degrees. The houses were made of stone with wooden support beams, beams that could and did catch on fire. Stone is great for keeping things cool, but at these temperatures, it was also probably functioning as an oven during the day. Fire was a very real threat, and while there were systems for collecting water and a spring, 100 meters below the town, a fire during the dry Cretan summer could mean losing an entire house or more in the village. I didn't see evidence of what the houses looked like, but to keep out the heat in the summer, they were probably one story and may have had small open windows with shutters. This would also help keep in the heat in the winter. Living at this altitude would have been difficult for many people, particularly the elderly and those with breathing problems like asthma. So if the extreme summers and brutally cold winters didn't get to you, the altitude might. Any farming would have involved people going up and down the mountain to tend to flocks and crops. It's a three-hour hike to the top of Carfi, so it's an all-day affair to tend fields or any livestock that couldn't live at the higher altitudes. We know that the town of Carfi was so high up that large-scale, organized farming probably wasn't possible. Any type of farming besides olive trees would have had to be done on the plains below or on the slopes of the mountain, meaning that their source of food was left unprotected. This journey to look after this type of farming would have been long and arduous. This would have been, like, really difficult. Just a difficult life. So I've talked about this before. My grandfather on my mom's side came from Italy. He lived in a mountainous area. 
he had a farm. It was spread out across like a bunch of mountains and they had like a bit of it that grew olives, another bit that grew grapes. They had sheep or goats and he would have to get up and like go. I think there was like two or three of them. They would get up at the beginning of the morning and they would choose where they were going and they would have to walk up a mountain, check on what was going on there. And that would be a whole day affair and then come back because there are places where that is what your life looks like. It is just a cycle of, you know, going up and down these slopes in these mountains to check on your livestock or your vineyard or or your grove of of olive trees. And you kind of have to hope nobody's going to go and take your shit. You hope in the remoteness of it that you're going to be safe. Right. And that's, you know, there's a lot of community trust there. And in some periods in history, there is more reason to trust than others. But it it sounds to me like there was probably a spirit of cooperation in these mountains. You know, like the local people weren't taking each other's shit. They were probably helping each other out. You would have to imagine that because life is hard up there. This is not a utopia. You know, I'm sure there are people who stole other people's sheep. But you've got to imagine that, like, if these are things they're cultivating on the slopes of the mountain or on the plains below, that they are doing it as a village together. So, Carfi was not a place you lived if your life was going well. I mean, I bet it was a beautiful place, but it was very, the life up there was tough. So this makes us wonder, why did people move up to this remote place? Why did they go to such lengths to live in such an inhospitable, inconvenient place? The plains below had fertile fields and a much warmer and just in general more welcoming climate. So why didn't people stay down there? Nobody knows. That's a mystery. And the answer may lie in what was happening in the wider world. During the 1200s, around the time the Ateocretans fled to the mountains, there was a huge cultural collapse amongst all the major powers in the Mediterranean and the Near East. It wasn't just the Minoans, the Hittites, the Mycenae, the Canaanites, the Cassiites in Babylonia. All of them seemed to crumble at the same time. And there are so many theories as to why this happened. In no particular order, these are the theories on what they believed happened during the 1200s to 900s BC the period that became known as the Greek Dark Ages. So these are the conditions that people were dealing with that led them to flee into the mountains to begin with, and what kept them up there for 200 years. One theory is volcanoes. A prevailing theory is that it wasn't just the Thera eruption, that there were a series of natural disasters that happened during this time, which caused mass migration events. These disasters could have included another eruption of the Thera volcano, potentially. Or the Helka III eruption in Iceland, which happened in 1159 BC, which also caused a volcanic winter that may have reached Crete. These two events would have been enough to destabilize the ancient Mediterranean. Another eruption from Thera would have created more tsunamis that would have made living near the coast extremely dangerous. Just imagine having a tsunami hit your community not one time, but many, many times. That could explain why people took refuge up in the mountains 1,100 meters above sea level, because they feared the sea. So another theory is earthquakes. The Mediterranean is very active seismically. Both times I visited Crete, there were earthquakes. With the second time last year that I was in Crete, the earthquake was strong enough to be felt in Hania, about 142 miles away from the epicenter. I was walking back from getting a COVID test, actually, because I was flying home that day. And the ground was shaking so much that I had a little stumble. So in the documentary, The Secrets of the Aegean Apocalypse, there is another theory that I found super compelling. Essentially, during the 1200s BC, a massive chain of earthquakes may have devastated the Mediterranean. 
These earthquakes may have been responsible for the destruction of many palaces. It's even believed that an earthquake destroyed Troy VI. This is a quote from an article called What Caused the Bronze Age Collapse? Five Theories. Quote, While it's difficult to prove such a cataclysmic event actually occurred in the late Bronze Age, this theory is more than just idle speculation. Many cities from across the late Bronze Age Mediterranean and Near East appear to have undergone some form of violent destruction. While some of these cities betray all the characteristics of having been sacked by invading enemies with telltale signs such as arrowheads lodged in walls, many others show a different kind of upheaval. Common signs of earthquake damage show up en masse in the archaeological record, including large cracks running through buildings, walls leaning at strange angles, toppled pillars, and bodies crushed by fallen debris. Earthquake damage has been identified with some certainty in Mycenaean Greece in particular, where major sites at Mycenae, Tyrans, Thebes, and Pylos all appear to have been ruined by earthquakes close to the date of the late Bronze Age collapse. While it seems in many places life appears to have resumed as normal after these earthquakes hit, with obvious repairs to buildings in many locations, one or more large earthquakes may have seriously impacted the smooth running of these late Bronze Age civilizations. Again, I just want to point out, when you, when you go back to these people up high in the village, the ground below them is rumbling and shaking. Like, can you imagine where would be safe? So the problem with this theory is that it is difficult to prove, and sometimes earthquake damage can also look like damage caused by an invasion, a siege, or a hostile attack. And also, it's difficult to prove exactly when these earthquakes would have happened if they would have been in a chain. I love this theory that there was like a fault line unzippered and, and all of these places had an earthquake going down the line. It's a theory. I like it. So another possibility is drought and climate change. The 1300s and the 1200s BC were times of climate change, when the weather was getting drier and hotter, making it more difficult to farm. Sources of fresh water may have also dried up. Because the weather was unstable, it caused a potential mass migration. New research shows what this would have looked like. Again, this is a quote from what caused the Bronze Age collapse. Quote, more recent studies seem to confirm that this drop in population coincides quite neatly with a sharp rise in temperatures in the Bronze Age Mediterranean. For example, pollen samples from the late Bronze Age, taken from alluvial deposits in both Syria and Cyprus, indicate a period of unusually high temperature. This pattern has also been supported by evidence for low rainfall in late Bronze Age Israel, as well as studies of sediment cores taken from the Aegean Sea which indicate a stark rise in air temperatures and a drop in precipitation. Changes in climate in the late 13th century BCE may have caused a drought that led to a lengthy famine, provoking a humanitarian disaster that caused political chaos. The theory that climate change may have given rise to the mysterious sea people also has precedence in other historical periods. Piracy is often a last resort option for people who cannot support themselves in any other way. In a similar fashion, various Bronze Age people may have taken to a life of raiding because their survival was at stake. Those were the natural disasters that may have been plaguing this time period. It's possible that there were more than one. The climate was unstable. The ground beneath the feet of the ancient people of Crete was literally shaking. It would have felt like the world was constantly coming to an end, and in a way it was. Because now we're going to move on to the man-made reasons for the ancient Cretans to flee to the high mountains and take refuge in mountain sanctuaries like Carphi, 
One of the things here to take note of is the collapse of the palace economy and the change in warfare. So the instability in the um, 1200s BC saw a lot of changes in the way the Minoan and Mycenaean societies were structured. Originally, life in the Minoan world revolved around the palace economy. Your work was tied to the king, worship of the gods, trade, farming, hunting, or soldiering, all of it in service to this palace. So all of these professions were, this is just to, you know, keep it simple here. All of these professions were tied to an economy that supported a big palace like Knossos. Cities and towns were built around these palaces. Palace economies are a fascinating digression all on their own. This was a type of economic organization that was widespread in the Bronze Age. Civilizations from ancient Egypt to the Incan Empire had forms of palace economies revolving around a central palace, elite village, or even a temple. Essentially, ordinary people produced goods, such as food, textiles, or tools, that were delivered to the palace, which then redistributed those goods according to its own priorities. Common people were held in thrall to the palace in various ways, through a patronage system or sometimes involuntary servitude. This would explain why the Palace of Knossos had such immense storerooms, with huge pithoi, massive stone or clay storage containers, that could have held as much as two tons of goods when full. Goods could be grain, olives or olive oil, wine, etc. And why the Mycenaeans after them kept such excessive records. The Mycenaeans kept track of every single sheep in every single herd in their hills on their Linear B tablets, and we thank them for that. Yeah, the Mycenaeans basically, for a time at least, preserved the palace economy system when they came in after conquering everything, if what they did was conquer, assumedly. Well, yeah, because the Mycenaeans, even more than the Minoans, needed it. Because they were a warlike people, and your palace economy was one way you could maintain a professional army. Anyway, the palace economy started to break down in the 1200s. And when the palace economy began to break down, life as the people of Crete knew it also began to break down. First, the Epicthera eruption destroyed their palaces. Then came the Mycenaean invasion. The Mycenaean invasion may have preserved that palace economy for a few centuries, but then there were droughts, fires, earthquakes, and finally a mysterious people came from the sea, known only as the Sea Peoples. Palaces, if there were any left standing, quickly fell. They were looted and burned down. People were taken into slavery or murdered by the sea people, unless they were able to flee to higher ground, say, to the old mountain passes where the sanctuaries were and hide away from the new invaders. They needed to go somewhere impassable and far away from the sea. In addition to that, Jenny, they needed to leave behind anything that had a traditional value. So like anything made of gold or something someone would want to steal, they left it behind because it would have no purpose for them. The sea peoples, if they ever did make it up to the mountains, needed to know that there was nothing for them up there. Like nobody had anything they'd want to steal. So the sea peoples are one of those great mysteries of the ancient world. Who were they and where did they come from? We don't exactly know. Essentially around the 1200s BC, records began to appear of a mysterious sea people, vicious raiders that came from the sea, robbed and destroyed coastal villages, took people into slavery, and disappeared as quickly as they came. The sea peoples were a Bronze Age menace, but again, who they were is another mystery. And these records documenting the sea people appeared throughout the Mediterranean world. Like, they were everywhere. What we do know about the sea people comes mainly from Egyptian inscriptions. However, those inscriptions don't tell us a lot. They say that the sea people were from the north, meaning maybe they were Europeans or Anatolians, or who knows? It's really not a lot to go on. Historians believe that the inscriptions don't tell us a lot about the sea peoples, 
Because, and this is so fascinating to me, Egyptians would have known exactly who these people were, so they didn't need to describe them. Which makes a kind of sense, right? We all know who the Vikings were, who the Incas were, who the Romans were. We don't need to describe them because we already have a mental picture of these warriors. We have our own mental, like, shorthand, right? The same is potentially true about the Egyptians and the Sea Peoples. The ancient Egyptians were frustratingly vague in some ways, describing the Sea Peoples in terms of an original location we can trace or identify today. But they were very specific in others. They described nine different peoples or tribes. The Denian, potentially the Dorians, who took over mainland Greece. The Equesh, the Luca, the Peliset, the Shekelesh, Sheridan, Teresh, Tejeker, and Weshesh. These groups may not have been identified with any other ancient tribe we know today. I will say it's very possible and even probable that the Dorians, who took over mainland Greece after the Mycenaeans fell, were probably sea peoples who then came down to Crete. So there are many theories about the sea peoples, but one of our favorites is that these peoples arose out of the fall of the palace economy. According to this theory, many of these peoples were originally soldiers tied to palace economies. They went to war when their rulers told them. They were fed by the palace, supported by the palace, provided with tools and weapons and armor and supplies by the palace. And when the palace collapsed, so did their livelihood, their entire way of life. And remember, many different Bronze Age cultures had palace economies. It wasn't just the Cretans. So these palace economies could have been collapsing all throughout the Mediterranean, leaving all these soldiers everywhere just at loose ends. So during this era, the soldiers did not know how to produce their own food. This is my assumption here. They'd probably always been provided for, right? So they did what they did best, what they were trained to do. They raided neighboring communities and took what they wanted. And then they moved on to the next country and repeated the cycle of violence. The Egyptian pharaoh Ramses III was an eyewitness describing a time when the sea people raided the Amaru kingdom in present-day Syria and Lebanon, sometime in the 1100s BC. Quote, they desolated its people and its land was like that which has never existed. The ancient societies of present-day Syria were on the receiving end of a lot of sea people violence. And again, these are nine different groups that have been identified. This is all happening at the same time. And while a lot was happening in Syria, we know it was happening everywhere. The last king of Ugarit, Amurabi, received a desperate letter from his ally, the king of Aliusha, who was begging for military aid from sea peoples himself. Amurabi says he can't come because he's also under attack. Quote, my father, behold, the enemy's ships came here, my cities were burned, and they did evil things in my country. Does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of Hatti, and all my ships are in the land of Luca? Thus, the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it, the seven ships of the enemy that came here inflicted much damage upon us. There are lots of letters and inscriptions and correspondence like this that tell a surprisingly immediate and desperate story of desolation and destruction for any civilization unlucky enough to stand in the sea people's path. These pirates were skilled warriors and they broke like waves through the major Bronze Age civilizations, with only Egypt being able to finally push them back although the Sea People's assault would cripple and change Egypt forever. So, was this why the people of eastern Crete fled to Carphi and other mountain sanctuaries, to escape from raiders coming in from the sea? It's quite possible. These mountain strongholds, including Carphi, were well defended and hard to approach, 
Some, like Carfi, could only be entered by climbing up handholds carved in the cliffs. There is absolutely a self-defense element to this. And it's important to note that these villages were facing the sea, so people could watch the sea at all times. So the other thing we're going to talk about, Jenny, is the change in warfare. And I know you're going to be thrilled because I did a little dive into military history of the time. You know I'm into that, Jen. A big thing that changed in military history around this time was the decline in the use of chariot warfare. And this might be the single biggest thing that created the sea people. Stay with me. Essentially, warfare was a huge industry. There were the elites, the charioteers, who fought in chariots. These were mostly nobles who could afford horses, chariots, and all the armor and crew and accoutrement that was needed to fight this way. These were big, epic battles with chariots riding towards each other, javelins and spears being thrown. Think about any battle you would picture in the Iliad or the Odyssey with chariots and javelins and gleaming bronze armor and all of that. That is what we're talking about here. I mean, that's a mythologized version, but basically that. It comes from somewhere. Exactly. So after the chariots chased each other around for a while, they had their passes. There was another job that was necessary, and this was a job that was left to mercenaries and the lower class. And that job was to essentially go around and fight or kill anyone who had fallen out of the chariot, been crushed by the chariot, who was just like still standing and like, let's fight. <laughs> Both the armies on, a, on two sides would have their own foot soldiers. So this would be, you know, this was the support army that would fight each other and maybe kill anybody who fell out of their chariot. This is like the cleanup crew, I suppose you could say. But also, like, they're fighting each other, like these foot soldiers. So this was a hand-to-hand combat zone. You know, these are people still thirsting for battle, and a lot of them fought with swords. Shorter swords. They've got some javelins slash spears, but they also have swords, and this is where things change. It's it's interesting because these would have been lower-class warriors who have to put themselves in more danger than the chariot warriors because those spears and javelins and arrows are long-range weapons that keep the chariot warrior a little bit out of the range, well, theoretically, of other warriors. I mean, they're still in quite a bit of danger, but they're not necessarily doing hand-to-hand combat until they're, they fall off their chariot. Exactly. But also think about the practicality of like having like a spear, maybe in a sword. You have a sword. It's a different way of fighting entirely. It means you have to get close to someone when you kill them. It means when you take their life, you're doing a lot of hacking and slashing. And it's creating another level of brutality that's very different from shooting an arrow or throwing a spear. Yeah. So anyway, these mercenaries or lower class soldiers were given military training and good weapons. They were given swords for hacking and slashing. And while they had a disadvantage during these epic chariot battles, the times were changing. Here's another quote from what caused the collapse of the Bronze Age civilization. Quote, Late Bronze Age warfare was typically characterized by the use of war chariots and bows. Armies such as those that fought in huge Bronze Age battles, such as the Battle of Kadesh, consisted of lightly armored charioteers who would throw various projectiles at each other from a distance. Swords, on the other hand, were rarely used. By the 12th century, however, the men depicted in the so-called Sea People Reliefs were armed quite differently. They carried slashing swords and javelins and wore heavy reinforced corslets as armor. These seaborne invaders represent a new type of military that would come to take over in the Iron Age, composed of heavily armed infantrymen equipped with thrusting weapons and small round shields. While under other circumstances, the sea people may have been just a nuisance, when armed with superior technology, they became a terrifying menace. 
Their javelins in particular would have been used to kill horses and immobilize chariots, allowing these well-armed infantrymen to move in and finish the job. So basically, they, they had the tech from the upper classes who might have all been killed off at this point or run off, and they had their own tech. So they were quite dangerous. They were super dangerous. And their economy that was paying them to do what they were good at, i.e. killing you, was not paying them anymore. So how are they going to eat? They're not trained to, like, make anything. They're not trained to create anything. They don't have anything to barter except what they can take with their own might. Smash and grab masculinity right here, people. That's what we're looking at here. You know, anathema to the Minoans. So that would be a huge problem for them. And number two, you have people like the Egyptians, the, the Hittites, the, the Mycenaeans who are warlike, but they made this monster. The way they fought war was so different. And now it's completely changed on its head. Well, the way they fought in war is kind of bred this person, theoretically, according to this theory. These are like the foot soldiers of the Iliad. After all the, you know, chariot heroes had been overthrown, picking up their own weapons and taking their armor and taking up their swords and just going out and just smashing and grabbing and taking what they needed because they didn't know how to do anything but that. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, you know, when the palace economy collapsed and all of this went tits up, it's easy to be like, well, why didn't they pay them? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? It's like, because at this point in time, as we're going to keep showing you, there was massive climate change. There wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough to go around for everyone. Therefore, you know, you used to have a society where everything funneled to the king and then the king redistributed. Well, there is nothing to funnel to the king. So people who are trying to hold on to the remnants of this society, it crashes and burns. And then what you get is what you see a lot of times in history, a survival of the strongest, not even the fittest. It's just those who can smash and take tend to survive. And those who in the mountains of Carfi are able to band together and find a remote place and scratch out a living are able to survive. Right. So with ancient warfare undergoing a massive change, it was clear that there was an opening for a new kind of warrior or mercenary or bandit to arise from the ruins of the palace economy, a pirate marauder, someone who was able to quickly move into and out of a city, fight at close quarters with a sword, and if they were the remnants of standing armies maintained by palace economy societies, that would explain where they got the training and the gear. They were lower-class infantry soldiers without the palace economies that supported them, free of their chariot-riding commanders, left to their own devices, and starving. Of course they're going to raid. What else are they going to do? Exactly. And I want to briefly mention the Dorians. So I didn't go down the deep dive of the Dorians essentially coming down, taking over mainland Greece, smashing, trashing, just like... The Dorians also, I came across them in my Sparta research for the Sacred Band of Thebes. There is a theory that the Dorians came into the Peloponnese and conquered the Mycenaeans who lived there and possibly enslaved them and became the Spartans. And the Spartans were known to speak Dorian Greek. They are a whole interesting thing to look at on mainland Greece. I wanted to mention that they did get to Crete. There is evidence that they did drive some of the Mycenaeans out. And it is possible that they may have been one of the sea peoples at some point in time. There's a, lots of mythology around them about them being sort of the sons of Hercules come back to take over after the death of Hercules. Like there's a lot in there and it's, it's really fascinating. But it, this would have been like a five hour episode if I included everything that was really fascinating. Carfi, like all the 80 other ancient 
mountain settlements in Crete faced the sea. Its back was to the mountains. It was watching the sea. It was easily defensible by just a few men or possibly women because of how remote and hard it was to climb up and get there and what the path was like. It had its own water source. It was defensible. Could it be that the ancient Cretans chose to set their refuge so high up in the mountains so they could watch the sea and be aware of who or what came out of it? They wanted to live up there, safe in the knowledge that it would be almost impossible for a warrior in his armor carrying all that gear to traverse the mountain paths and attack them or even know they were up there. And if they did know they were up there, they would have to know that they didn't have anything to steal. They were poor. And when we talk about the sea people, they didn't just bring destruction. They may have brought diseases. I mean, and this goes for any large-scale migration, which we know is happening because of climate change at this point in time. This is the thing that blew my mind. This period during the Bronze Age collapse is a time of great migration of people. People are moving wherever they can to survive. So, a new theory looks at what might have caused the decline of the palace economy, and it may have had a lot to do with the migrations of people and disease. This is from the National Library of Medicine, and it synthesizes a bunch of abstracts about how diseases affected the Bronze Age. So I'm going to read you these sort of like little snippets from these studies. Quote, Eric Watson Williams wrote an article about the end of the Bronze Age called The End of an Epoch, in which he championed bubonic plague as the sole cause for the catastrophe. Quote, what seems so puzzling is the reason why these apparently strong and prosperous kingdoms should disintegrate, he questioned. He cites abandonment of cities, the adoption of the practice of cremation of the dead, instead of the usual burial because so many people died, and it was necessary to destroy the decomposing bodies quickly, and the fact that bubonic plague is very deadly, killing animals and birds as well as humans, affects large areas, spreads rapidly, and lingers for many years, as reasons for his choice of bubonic plague. He provides no physical evidence, but uses history to compare how things were, during later bubonic plague epidemics such as the Plague of Justinian and the Black Death to how things were around 1200 BCE. Watson Williams argues that there were four epidemics of bubonic plague that we know of in ancient times, namely the Hittite epidemic of 1322 BCE, the exodus from Egypt in the reign of Merenepta around 1230 BCE, the Plague of the Philistines around 1130 BCE, and finally the Plague Quote, that which destroyed the army of Sennacherib around 700 BCE. He also quotes a pestilence that killed 70,000 men in three days during the reign of King David, circa 1017 BCE, that may have been bubonic plague. We see in Greek drama, right? During Oedipus Rex, what is the problem that's happening? There's a plague. So we know Thebes was destroyed at a certain point in time. We also know Thebes had plagues. So could this be an answer for this? You see it in the Bible. You see it, I believe, in the Hittite libraries. There is a record of a 20-year plague at a certain point. This idea of plague that you see, particularly plagues that come from the gods, you get them in Oedipus, you get them in Antigone. You see it in the Iliad. When you don't bury people properly, you get plague. This is something they knew during ancient times, and it's also seen as something coming from the gods or some kind of, you know, punishment. So I'm really interested in where we see plague in ancient sources and even mythological sources, and can we relate it back to something in history? Hopefully, potentially, who knows? So let's break this all down. Essentially, the theory is that because of climate change and global movement, a lot of people were moving into new areas. This meant that large urban centers, palaces and such, 
We're now being exposed to new people, people who might be carrying new diseases such as the plague. And this theory makes so much sense. I don't think anyone's dug up a skeleton from Carfi and found bubonic plague in like the, the dental roots or something, but that evidence is still yet to be found, like specific archaeological evidence, but this is one theory that historians are entertaining. Exactly. So this is uh, a little more from that abstract. Quote, Lars Wallow of the University of Oslo had a similar view to that of Watson Williams when he wrote his article, Was the Disruption of the Mycenaean World Caused by Repeated Epidemics of Bubonic Plague? He noted the large movements of population. Quote, the population decreased in successive steps during the first two or three epidemics of plague, down to perhaps half or one-third of its pre-plague level, and that there was, quote, a substantial reduction in agricultural production. This led to famine and the abandoning of settlements. He thus concluded that bubonic plague accounted for all of these observations rather than other infectious diseases such as anthrax. So were the people of Carfi self-isolating? Was there plague down on those plains? It's hard to know. Like I said, there's very little physical evidence from this era and time period that suggests plague like a disease definitively that I know of. But there is a suggestion that plague was sweeping the Mediterranean due to unprecedented migrations driven by climate change and natural disasters, famine and drought. And it is in the historical records. You see people mentioning this happening. So it's quite possible. Whatever the answer is, it seems fairly clear that fear of something drove people into the mountains, specifically fear of something that came from the sea, fear of tsunamis, invaders, plague, or all three. So, Jenny and listeners, I've laid out all of the theories. Which do you think is most likely? You know, to be honest, Jen, I think it could have been all of it at once. Like, to different degrees, you know, but I, I think all of it at once seems quite likely to me. I mean, there's physical evidence of most, if not all, of this. That is actually the prevailing theory, is that it is all of it at once. <laughs> I think that the interesting thing here is that you do see people rebuilding after the initial Thera eruption. You know, the Thera eruption itself wasn't enough to put down the Minoans. And you'd think that would just destroy everything, but it didn't. Like, that was one incident, and people rebuilt after that as devastating as it was. People are resilient, but just the idea that any community could recover after waves upon waves upon waves of different kinds of disasters over centuries, like, that's what we're talking about here. Totally makes sense that people in Minoan Crete were fleeing to the mountains. I mean, I live in New York City. It's like people would flee to the subways after a certain point, you know? We've all lived through 2020. We've all seen what it looks like when you're self-isolating, how the world is different, how the news is different, how you feel different when you're cut off in that way. I think that's what we're seeing here. Everything all at once was coming at these people in a time period where we don't have global communication. Things are not being recorded. You're not understanding what's going on. You know, you're not able to go out to these people who are invading and be like, what's wrong? Everything's bad everywhere else. Come on in. We'll help you. You know, like, and people aren't interested. They just want to take because they just want to survive. We feel a little bit of solidarity, just a teensy bit, because we lived through 2020. I mean, the COVID pandemic was was quite bad, worse in some areas than others. Um, I was in lockdown, you know, in the first few months in New York City. I know what it feels like now for the world to just shrink down to this narrow little corner and for everything outside to feel scary. And that's how it must have felt, but even so much more than that. These were a confident people. These were a seafaring people, a trading people, a creative people. 
they went out into the world and they took their culture out into the world and they did so well. And then this happened and they retreated and you can see their world just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and all that confidence just bleeding out of them until the last of them are up in these mountain strongholds, afraid of the sea that used to sustain them because the sea turned on them. As we've said, archaeology suggests that Carthy was abandoned after between 100 and 200 years of habitation. It may have been looted and destroyed in a violent attack as the rock-cut tombs at Carthy were looted or the residents took most of their artifacts with them. We don't know why the people left, where they went, or what they took with them. The reasons the people of Carthy had for leaving their mountain refuge are just as mysterious as their reasons for coming there in the first place. So that's it for this week. We hope, you know, this has got you buzzing and interested. Join us next week for whatever we're doing next. It might be spooky season. I'm not sure. In the meantime, find us on social at Ancient His Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And please check out our Patreon. The Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And it's the reason that we are able to keep going with this podcast. Absolutely. And Jenny, we've got some patrons to thank this week. We sure do. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Harrison Case, Roni Guzman, Samantha Wellen, Laura, just Laura, and Tawny Craig. Thank you so much. And we have a new five-star review. Um, Again, we thank you who leave us five-star reviews. They do make all the difference. And we are committed to reading as many of them as we can on the podcast. This one comes to us from America. It starts interesting story arcs. If I start a story arc, I find myself thinking about it a lot. And the stories stick in my brain. Like if I'm listening while I walk past a certain place, and then I walk by it again a few days later, I'll think of the story again. I love history, but just don't care about battles. So getting to hear about people's lives like this podcast does is just what I'm looking for. And that's from Ginger A in the U.S. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you so much uh, for listening. Thank you so much to our Patreon members for supporting the podcast. Thank you so much for those who leave us reviews. It really does help sustain us. And we will see you in a week with whatever we're talking about next. Bye.